Welcome to the Badlands, that overlooked place where philosophical thought runs into the political concerns of the day. Welcome to the Badlands Politics and Philosophy Podcast, a series which aims to expose and examine the underlying ideas that shape our political landscape. I'm Toby Napolitano. And I'm Michael Hughes. So in the past couple of episodes, we've been talking about one of the big issues that divides progressives from the Democratic Party, namely money and politics. But now we move on to another dividing issue, economic inequality, the massive gaps in wealth, income, and opportunity that exist between the wealthy and those who are not so well off. This is clearly one of the defining issues for progressives. And, like the issue of money in politics, it took center stage during the 2016 Democratic primaries, where Bernie Sanders continuously railed against the rigged economy and the astronomical wealth gap between the rich and the poor. And it's also obviously an issue where progressives and Democrats disagree, at least in terms of the emphasis they place on it. But it might not be obvious why progressives care so much about economic inequality. I mean, what's the big deal? Some people make more than others. There isn't anything obviously wrong with that. After all, some people deserve more than others. Some people work harder and produce more than others. The American dream is not based on the idea that everyone is deserving of a decent living, but on the idea that no matter who you are, if you work hard enough and play by the rules, then you'll be able to get ahead and have enough to provide for you and your family. So what gives? Are progressives just against the American dream or something? I mean, let's be honest, probably one of the best ways to tell if someone is a progressive is to see how hard they roll their eyes when someone invokes the idea of the American dream. But it's not because they think that wealth should be distributed equally across the population or anything like that. It's just that the belief in the American dream often seems to have almost a kind of religious status. It's something that people feel like it's important to accept all evidence to the contrary be damned. And it's regularly invoked whenever someone makes a moral critique of America's excessive inequality. Right. But, but the question of whether no matter who you are and where you come from, you can succeed on the basis of your hard work and talent is obviously an empirical one. And if it turns out that things aren't so merit-based and that some people are locked out of decent economic conditions, no matter what they do, then that might mean that our economic institutions are fundamentally unjust. In this episode, we're going to explore the issue of income inequality as it relates to the idea of the American dream. We're going to argue that the excessive economic inequality that exists in the United States is morally problematic and that it reflects fundamental injustice in our social and economic institutions. But first, let's hear some quick reminders of what the American dream is all about. I am delighted to have this opportunity to talk to so many of the salespeople who help our economy grow and help keep the American dream alive for millions of Americans. In America, if you work hard and play by the rules, if you take responsibility for yourself and your family, you should have all the opportunity you need for a better future. That's America's basic bargain. I do believe in the American dream. I believe there is such a thing as the American dream. And I believe those of us who have been given positions of responsibility must, must uh, do everything we can to spotlight the dream and to make sure the dream shines in all neighborhoods. Now, the bedrock of our economic success is the American dream. It's a dream shared in big cities and small towns across races, regions, and religions that if you work hard, you can support a family, that if you get sick, there will be health care that you can afford. 
that you can retire with the dignity and security and respect that you've earned, that your children can get a good education, that young people can go to college even if they don't come from a wealthy family. We've spent a year and a half bringing together millions of people from every corner of our country to say with one voice that we believe that the American dream is big enough for everyone, for people of all races and religions, for men and women, for immigrants, for LGBT people and people with disabilities, for everyone. Listening to those clips, one cannot help but feel the emotional pull of the American dream. I know I certainly can't help but feel inspired when I hear stories like that of Oprah Winfrey, Ben Carson, Chris Gardner, the man whose life was portrayed by Will Smith in The Pursuit of Happiness, Larry Ellison, stories of people who come from nothing and through sheer force of will turn their lives into remarkable success stories. Such stories give people a reason to hope and to believe that through good intentions and hard work, profound personal transformation of one's life is possible. And while such stories are incredibly inspiring in people's personal lives, they're probably even more impactful on our public lives, on public debates about the state of the American economy and the fairness of our economic and social institutions and economic policies more generally. The way debates over our economy are often framed, the question of whether our economy is morally acceptable is reducible to questions about whether the American dream is alive and well. And the inspirational success stories are taken to be living proof that the American dream is doing fine and thus that our society is a fundamentally just one. And often, the critique of progressives is precisely on the grounds that it is not. That, anyways, is the case we're going to make in this episode. We are living at a time where a handful of people have wealth beyond comprehension. And I'm talking about tens of billions of dollars, enough to support their families for thousands of years. More money than they would ever know what to do with. But at that very same moment, there are millions of people in our country, let alone the rest of the world, who are struggling to feed their families. They are struggling to put a roof over their heads, and some of them are sleeping out on the streets. They are struggling to find money in order to go to a doctor when they are sick. Okay, so let's talk economic inequality. But before we talk about why it's a problem, let's just get some statistics on the table which illustrate the sort of inequality that we're talking about. And apologies if you've heard these figures before, but it's important that we at least mention them here. There are, of course, a wide variety of stats that we could cite, but let's just start with those that get at the heart of the problem. The first thing to note is that we live in a country where the least well-off are living under conditions that most wealthy and middle-class Americans can't even begin to fathom. For instance, the bottom 20% of American households, and keep in mind this is per household, live on an average of around $11,000 a year. And within those households, there's an average of about $6,500 per person to spend per year. Man, how are we going to win this argument? Defenders of the American dream have Oprah, and we have the Census Bureau. But seriously, $11,000 a year for a household? Anyone who has had any experience with supporting themselves or someone else knows that $11,000 is just not enough. Not even close to enough, in fact. 
Right. So the first important thing to keep in mind is that the bottom 20% of households live under incredibly trying conditions and have to try to make it on less than $20,000 a year. And the second thing to know is that the household income of people who fall on the next quintile, that is the next 20%, are hardly living at a reasonably high standard of living. Those households whose income put them in the bottom 40%, but above the bottom 20%, their average household income was just around $27,000 a year with about $12,800 per person per year. So in the wealthiest nation on earth, 40% of households are living off less than $37,000 a year. And on average, they live on less than $27,000 a year. Overall, according to the Census Bureau, about 45 million Americans live in poverty. And to be clear, to qualify for being counted as living in poverty requires meeting a ridiculously low bar. And 33 million Americans are currently without health insurance. To sum up, America's least well-off are trying to survive under incredibly difficult economic conditions. Meanwhile, there is a tremendous amount of wealth and income that is concentrated at the very top of America's economic hierarchy. On the other end of the spectrum, the average income for the top 20% of households is around $177,000 a year, which means people in the top 20% are, on average, living off from around 16 times the average income of the bottom 20%. But in some ways, talking about the income distribution understates the problem. The differences are even more staggering when you focus on the accumulation of wealth, the combined value of one's bank accounts and assets, including property and stock, and so on. Right. The inequalities are so large, they're hard to wrap one's head around. And indeed, there have been a number of studies which show that Americans vastly underestimate the amount of inequality that exists in the United States. That's right. In fact, let's play a little game to break up the monotony of reading off Census Bureau statistics for a minute. Wait, people don't like having stats read to them? No, we're playing a game. We can call it, uh, what should we call it? How about, um, the price is way too high for most Americans. I was thinking maybe, what's it like to be a millionaire? How about, uh, family inheritance feud? Or, deal or go fuck yourself? Meal or no meal? Wheel of misfortune? Redistribute Ben Stein's money. Survivor? That's it? Survivor, that's a good one, I like that. Any of those will do. So let me get this straight. We're going to spice things up by having me guess Census Bureau statistics. Question number one. How much of the total wealth in the United States do you think the top 20% richest Americans own? So I guess that's a yes. Uh, to give myself a better chance, um, I'm going to pull the audience. And in this case, the audience is just the American people. Uh, so in various studies, they estimate that the top 20% own about 56% of overall wealth. So how was that for an answer? Ooh, I am so sorry. That is so incorrect. I mean, really incorrect. In fact, the top 5% own, by themselves, 67% of the total wealth. The top 20% actually own 90% of all the wealth in the United States. And for anyone who's wondering, the top 1% owns 40% by itself. Well, shit. Those are some bleak Census Bureau statistics. Oh, we're just getting started. Question number two. How much wealth does the bottom 50% of Americans own? Hmm. So I was going to pull the audience again, but given how bad they did on the last one, that's probably a bad idea. Supposing I did, I'd be forced to say somewhere around 15%. But then, given that the top 20% own 90% of all wealth, that number could be at most 10%. So I guess I'll say 5%? The correct answer is actually 1%. The bottom 50%, half of Americans, combined to own 1% of the total wealth in the country. Better luck next time. Yeah, after that first answer, I expected it was going to be something awful like that.
Oh, don't worry. You get a chance to redeem yourself in this bonus round. Here's the bonus question. What do you think is the average net worth of the bottom 40% of households? Fuck it. Let's just say zero dollars. Wrong again. The average net worth of the bottom 40% of American households is... Negative $8,900. So sorry, contestant. God damn it, I hate this game. This is way less fun than watching Oprah give people cars and shit. This is just too damn depressing. Yeah, that game sucks. But, okay, so here's an interesting question. Is it only really depressing for progressives, because, after all, we're dirty socialists or something? Or do Americans generally think this is really a problem? Well, there are also studies which ask Americans how they think wealth should be distributed, what an ideal distribution would be. And it turns out, they're dirty socialists too. Right, so according to Michael Norton and Dan Ariely's studies on what Americans believe the ideal wealth distribution would look like, most Americans would like to see a distribution where the top 20% owns around 32% of the nation's wealth, and the bottom 20% owns about 11%, and things in the middle are pretty even in their distribution. So the ideal distribution, according to the average American, would involve the bottom 20% owning about a third as much wealth as the top 20%. Obviously, that's a far cry from the current situation, where the top 20% owns 90% of all wealth, and the bottom 20% owns negative wealth. And to be clear about just how much we all agree on this, Republicans are included in these studies, and they give very similar responses. Okay, so now that we've got some stats on the table, we can conclude two things. First, there is massive economic inequality in the United States. And second, the vast majority of Americans think things should be much more equal. But now we move on to our main focus. Why is this massive inequality such a problem? Why are Americans right for thinking that things should, in fact, be more equal? The first thing to note is that it's not so much that inequality itself is the problem. No one is arguing that the very fact that some people have more money than other people is, by itself, inherently bad. Rather, when progressives are talking about the problem of economic inequality, they tend to be talking about our current situation, in which there's extraordinary inequality, and where those who are least well-off are living in deplorable conditions. All labor has dignity. Yes. But you are doing another thing. You are reminding not only Memphis, but you are reminding the nation that it is a crime for people to live in this rich nation and receive starvation wages. Note what Martin Luther King Jr. says in the clip we just played. The problem isn't just that there is a big gap between the richest and the poorest, it's that the poorest are actually suffering, living lives which, in many ways, fall below the standards for what most of us would consider a decent, dignified life. And being poor doesn't just mean you don't have enough money to buy extravagant things. We'll raise these issues in greater detail in future episodes. But for now, we can just note that if you are poor, you are substantially less likely to get a good education, you will have reduced access to health care, you are much more likely to suffer from mental illness, to die from cancer, to have asthma and diabetes, to be the victim of violence, to be incarcerated. The list goes on. In the end, this all adds up to a greatly reduced life expectancy for the poor. The top quartile can expect to live around 7 to 10 years longer than the bottom quartile, depending on which state you live in. Now, why does it matter that the rich are so extraordinarily rich? 
Well, it matters because given the incredible amount of wealth in the United States, one simply cannot argue that we just don't have the resources to at least significantly improve the living standards of the poor. Right. This is really important because one of the standard lines one hears when discussing poverty and our failure to address the needs of the worst off is that we just don't have enough money to do anything about it. If that were true, then the situation would be unfortunate, but it wouldn't necessarily reflect any moral failing. There just simply wouldn't be enough to go around. But given what the current distribution of wealth looks like, there's just no way to make that argument. And so the first argument that our current state of inequality is morally unacceptable just follows from the idea that it's morally unacceptable to have people experiencing serious deprivation amidst such an abundance of wealth. This idea can be justified in a number of ways, and we'll mention a few here. Before we get to our first principle, we want to start by just thinking about a classic example that illustrates one of the basic intuitions for why we have moral obligations to help the poor. Okay, so to start with, imagine that you're high up on a ravine, and looking down, you spot a small child drowning in shallow water. Initially, you start to panic because you realize that there's no way that you can possibly make it down the ravine in time to save them. You shout for someone to help, and to your relief you spot an adult within a few feet of the water who will easily be able to save the child. Now, this person clearly hears you and sees the child. In fact, they shout back up to you in an annoyed voice, Yes, I see what is happening. Great, you think. Nothing to worry about. But now, to your astonishment and horror, this person just keeps walking and starts up the path out of the ravine. You plead and beg for this person to turn around. But nothing. A little while later... This person has reached you on the path, and looking down, you can clearly see that the child is dead. As the person passes by, you confront them. How could you do that? Their answer? Yeah, well, you know, I just got these really sweet shoes, and I didn't want to walk into the water because it would ruin my shoes, so... How would you respond to someone who gave that answer? For most people, the natural response is continued horror and condemnation of this person's choice. Why? Well, the example illustrates a general principle that seems highly intuitive, and which was defended most famously by the philosopher Peter Singer. For convenience sake, we're going to call it the principle of aid. The principle goes, If you are in a position to prevent someone from experiencing some significant harm without any real moral cost to yourself, then morally speaking, you really ought to do so. Right. In other words, when there's someone who desperately needs help to avoid a really bad outcome, and you can give that help with very little inconvenience to yourself, then morally speaking, you ought to do it. It's wrong not to help someone in those kinds of situations. Now, how does this relate to our obligations to help the poor? Well, the idea is pretty simple. The poor are in the position of the child in the example, and the wealthy are in the position of our passerby who prioritizes their sweet shoes over the well-being of others. Now, obviously, we're not saying that the poor as a group are completely helpless, but nevertheless, in many cases, the poor will need to rely on the help of others in order to live decently. The fact is that the extraordinarily wealthy can save, or at least greatly improve, the lives of the very poor without giving up anything that would count as a significant moral cost. There is at least some amount of money that they could give up to help the poor that they wouldn't even notice was gone. Hell, I don't even have enough wealth to be considered middle class and there's still probably some amount of wealth that I could lose and not even notice the difference. Right. 
This principle seems to entail that most people who aren't struggling under conditions of poverty themselves have some moral obligation to give what they can to help the poor. At least on the surface, this is the situation of the poor in America. There are lots of people with lots of wealth who could very easily improve the lives of the worst off without making any real sacrifice. So the extreme wealth inequality in the U.S. illustrates that we are failing to live up to this basic principle. Of course, the principle that we just considered was put explicitly in terms of individuals and individual obligations. And it is pretty common for at least some libertarians and conservatives to accept the principle as stated previously, but to insist that the principle is unmoving from a political standpoint. Just because we have obligations as individuals to help the poor does not automatically mean that we should change our institutions. And we should explain what we mean here by institutions. We're using the term pretty broadly as a shorthand for all of the economic, political, and social mechanisms that help determine the distribution of wealth and income. The most obvious mechanisms will be our broadly capitalist economic system, our tax policies, social safety nets like welfare and food stamps, and things like that. But it also includes things like our educational system, our healthcare system, all sorts of things that are important for one's ability to have a decent standard of living. So often you hear that the best way to address poverty is through personal charity. Progressives, I think, generally find this line of thought to be unpersuasive. And that's because, first, we know that there just won't be enough charitable donation to adequately address the problem, but also, the principle of aid can and should be extended to our political and social institutions. In order to apply to our institutions, the principle of aid would need to be generalized to something like the following. If our social institutions could be arranged so as to minimize and prevent significant moral harms, like death, suffering, and injury, without requiring anyone to make morally significant sacrifices to themselves or the objectives of those institutions, then our social institutions should be so arranged, and the people who control those institutions have a moral obligation to see that they are. Now, this principle might seem somewhat obvious. After all, what's the point of our institutions if not to protect us from serious harm? But we can provide additional support to it by appealing to the notion of human rights. Human rights basically are the rights that we have just because we are human beings. For instance, a standard thought is that everyone has a basic right to things like physical security, to self-defense, freedom of movement, and freedom from torture. And the notion of human rights has played a prominent role in American political thought for hundreds of years and was central to America's founding political ideology. Most children in America are raised on America's human rights narrative. Right? We're all familiar with the famous lines from the Declaration of Independence, which Dr. King so eloquently paraphrases here. We read one day, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Of course, the Declaration of Independence and Constitution have generally been interpreted as guaranteeing certain basic liberties, that is, certain freedoms from government interference. The founding documents effectively guarantee us all the freedom of movement, expression, and conscience. But at least arguably, in them one will not find any guarantee that their material needs will be met or that the government will do its best to ensure a decent standard of living. But then, as King notes, But if a man doesn't have a job or an income, he has neither life nor liberty. And 
the possibility for the pursuit of happiness. He merely exists. As King notes there, these basic rights cannot be exercised when a person lives at a certain level of material deprivation, and it has generally become the received view of the international community that basic subsistence rights are part of the set of inalienable human rights that governments have an obligation to protect. In fact, one of the primary human rights documents, the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, which the U.S. signed in 1977, recognizes a basic human right to subsistence. More specifically, it requires that governments take progressive steps towards ensuring, among other things, that all citizens are able to have enough to lead a decent life to the maximum of the government's available resources. Thus, according to the human rights agreements that the United States has signed, this means that if the citizens of some country are starving, suffering from malnutrition, or generally stuck in chronic poverty, and the government is not making it a priority to provide assistance to those who need it, and perhaps more importantly, to prevent the conditions that lead to systemic poverty, then that government is failing to protect the basic human rights of its citizens. Now, what does this have to do with inequality in the United States? After all, the believer in the American dream will probably say. Aren't human rights violations things that happen in other, less developed parts of the world? Well, given the statistics we cited earlier, we have to ask ourselves: Can we really say that protecting our basic human right to subsistence is a priority for our government? Keep in mind that in 2016, something like 12.7 percent of Americans—that's about 43 million people—were living in poverty, according to the government standard for what counts as living in poverty. And the poverty rate for children was 15.6 percent. That means that more than one in every seven kids is living in poverty. Meanwhile, social welfare programs, which are meant to assist the poor and to help get them out of poverty, are being systematically underfunded, undermined, and dismantled. And instead of expanding these programs over time, we've generally made them harder to access for those who need them. And repeated tax cuts over the years means that what little safety net we do have is harder and harder to fund. Our tax code does not reflect a society which prioritizes the prevention and elimination of poverty. Now, someone might still think, "Look, sure, we're not doing as much as we can. That much is obvious. But being poor in the United States isn't that bad. It's not like those pictures you see of other parts of the world where the kids are starving and malnourished and stuff." This is something people often say when discussing poverty in the United States, and of course they're right. The material conditions aren't as bad as those that exist in the worst cases of famine and food shortage that exist in certain places of the world at certain times. But that's a non sequitur. Is the idea that things are going well here because they are better than they are in areas where there are humanitarian catastrophes occurring? Talk about setting a low bar. And furthermore, malnutrition is a problem in the United States. In 2015, 12.7 percent of households experienced what's called food insecurity, which means that their ability to consistently access nutritious food is limited or uncertain. And 5 percent of households—that's 6.3 million households. Regularly lacked enough food to feed everyone, and had reduced meal size or skipped meals altogether. And all these statistics, of course, concern households, and therefore don't count the relevant statistics for those who are homeless. And so, while there are certain worse human rights disasters elsewhere in the world, it's hard to make the case that in the United States there are adequate protections against deprivation. And in fact, when Professor Philip Alston, the United Nations specialist on extreme poverty and human rights, visited the United States to investigate the nature of poverty here. That is largely what he concluded. He writes, "The United States is one of the world's richest, most powerful, and technologically innovative countries. But neither its wealth, nor its power, nor its technology is being harnessed to address the situation in which 40 million people continue to live in poverty." He goes on to note how rampant inequality runs counter to the grand narratives that are encapsulated in the American dream. 
He writes, American exceptionalism was a constant theme in my conversations. But instead of realizing its founders' admirable commitments, today's United States has proved itself to be exceptional in far more problematic ways that are shockingly at odds with its immense wealth and its founding commitment to human rights. As a result, contrast between private wealth and public squalor abound. Okay, so we've given a couple of reasons for thinking that the current distribution of wealth and resources in the United States is morally problematic. The basic idea is not that differences in wealth are problematic themselves. The problem is the existence of extreme wealth amidst real deprivation. Right. First, we have a general obligation to prevent serious harms to other people when we can do so with little cost to ourselves. And second, we have a moral obligation to ensure that our institutions are designed so that they at least succeed in protecting basic human rights. The extreme wealth amidst real poverty that we have in the United States is symptomatic of our failure to live up to those obligations. Now, we started the episode off by talking about the American dream, that idea that no matter who you are, if you work hard and play by the rules, you can live a decent life, where decent means something resembling a middle-class standard of living. But as we've argued, lots of people are unable to lead decent lives in the United States. So what gives? And this is where people often invoke the American dream the most. As we said earlier, the idea behind the American dream is not that everyone will live a decent life, just those that work hard and play by the rules. You know, the people that actually deserve it. So for the believer in the American dream, all we've shown is that lots of people, poor people in the United States, that is, don't actually put in the work to deserve a decent life. And behind this idea is the idea that in America, there is some semblance of equal opportunity. That everyone, no matter who they are or how much their family has, has a good shot at success in life. And so they might say that, well, maybe we should give to charity a bit more. There's no need to change our basic institutions because what matters is that they're fair, that there's a quality of opportunity. And furthermore, the Oprahs of the world prove that the American dream is real. And so they prove that our institutions are fundamentally just. They give everyone the opportunity to succeed... And so the distribution of wealth is just determined by who makes the most of their opportunities and who doesn't. But that will be the topic of our next episode, where we'll examine the distribution of opportunity in the United States and discuss what that means for the American dream. And we will also discuss some of the ideas that underlie the American dream itself, like the idea that everyone does and should only get what they deserve. We'll argue that not only is the American dream a myth that stands in the way of real progress, but the ideals it embodies aren't even all that great. But that's next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Badlands Politics and Philosophy Podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can help it grow by subscribing and by giving it a good rating or a review. And don't forget to check out our website, badlandsphilosophy.com, where you can find a list of citations for every episode and access written content that we post there regularly. This week, you can check out a piece that I wrote called What is Capitalism? Turns out that answering that question is a bit more complicated than you might think. So as always, if you're interested, you should go to our website, badlandsphilosophy.com. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that through our website, and you can also find us on Twitter at at the Badlands Pod. Thanks again for listening.